Jarrell uh, Robinson Brown is the assistant curate at uh, St Botolph's without Aldgate, um, which sounds quite a painful uh, exercise. Um, um, and uh, uh, before uh, Jarrell was uh, chaplain at King's College London, uh, and before that, um, before he moved over to the dark side of the force, or the Church of England, as it's also called, uh, he was a Methodist minister um, uh, based in uh, South Wales and then in South East London. Um, Jarrell has suffered more than anyone in the history of Christianity. He was my next-door neighbour at college for two years. Um, um, but, uh, Jarrell, we are delighted that you're able to be with us here uh, this evening to give our lecture on religion, race and sexuality a complex trinity. We're looking very much to hearing what you have to say. Um, I also need to emphasise that Jarrell's book uh, is on sale outside. There are uh, about five copies left uh, in the foyer um, and uh, uh, it's very reasonably priced at £20. So, um, so uh, if you want to purchase one on your way out then that would be much appreciated as well. Uh, but Jarrell, I hand over to you now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim, and thank you for uh, this invitation to be here. I hope that anyone who uh, was expecting the former Archbishop of Canterbury isn't too disappointed with the former Methodist minister. Rowan is next month, and you're going to be going up in terms of your quality with him, I'm sure. Um, but it is lovely to be with you this evening and to be here. One of the things that many people ask me in relation to the book I've most recently written is why the title? Why black, gay, British, Christian, queer? It's hardly catchy, and even I get them wrong, and in the wrong order, as I discovered one early morning when I had to do 17 radio interviews about the book, all in one day. But in essence, I suppose the book is called what it is because it captures different parts of my identity, some of which I claim happily, black, Christian, queer, others that I wrestle with in some ways, British, gay, and some that I feel sit in tension with each other because of the way they are menaced in the world, the church, and in black culture. Can you be black and gay? Gay and Christian, black and British? Um, well, tonight I hope to show why religion, race, and sexuality are a complex trinity for me, and why they cannot be easily separated and how to those three things, religion, race, and sexuality, relate to how I understand God and how I talk about God. I want to begin by sharing a scene written by the African-American gay essayist, playwright, and activist James Baldwin, who was born in Harlem in America in 1924. It's a scene from his short story called The Outing, which was written in 1965. And it's all about a church away day which takes place on a boat. A story in which, in the midst of many theological themes, sexuality and race are always peering in from the corner. The scene I want to read from is fairly close to the end of the story. And just for context, we're at the moment when, as happens on all good church away days, the faithful have come together to worship because Christians always have to do the Christian thing wherever we are. And there are two boys, Johnny and David, who are isolated from the excitement of the worship that's happening around them. And I want to read that to you before um, I continue. This is from James Baldwin's The Outing. 
Johnny and David rose from their knees, and as they rose, the congregation rose, clapping their hands, singing. The three boys did not sing. They stood together, carefully ignoring one another, their feet steady on the slightly tilting floor, but their bodies moving back and forth as the music grew more savage. And someone cried aloud, a timeless sound of wailing. Fire splashed the open deck and filled the doors and bathed the sinners standing there. Fire filled the great hall and splashed the faces of the saints, and a wind unearthly moved above their heads. Their hands were arched before them, moving, and their eyes were raised to heaven. Sweat stained the deacon's collar and soaked the tight headbands of the women. Was it true, then? And had there indeed been born one day in Bethlehem a Saviour who was Christ the Lord, who had died for them, for them, the spat upon and beaten with rods, who had worn a crown of thorns and seen his blood run down like rain, and who had laid in the grave three days and vanquished death and hell and risen again in glory, was it for them? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Yes, and he was coming back one day, this King of Glory. He would crack the face of heaven and descend to judge the nations and gather up his people and take them to their rest. Take me by my hand and lead me on. Somewhere in the back, the woman cried out and began to shout. They looked carefully about, still not looking at one another, and saw us from a great distance and through intolerable heat, such heat as might have been faced by the Hebrew children when cast bound into the fiery furnace, that one of the saints was dancing under the arm of the Lord. She danced out into the aisle, beautiful with a beauty unbearable, graceful with grace that poured from heaven. Her face was lifted up, her eyes were closed, and the feet which moved so surely now were not her own. One by one, the power of God moved others, and as it had been written, the Holy Ghost descended from heaven with a shout. Sylvia raised her hands, the tears poured down her face, and in a moment she too moved out into the aisle, shouting, Is it true then? The saints rejoiced. Roy beat the tambourine, David, grave and shaken, clapped his hands, and his body moved insistently in the rhythm of the dancers. Johnny stood beside him, hot and faint, and repeating yet again his struggle, summoning in panic all his forces to save him from this frenzy. And yet daily, he recognized that he was black with sin, that the secrets of his heart were a stench in God's nostrils. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. That passage will make more sense at the very end, but more than once in that passage, the question, is it true then, is asked. And I think that one of the initial feelings for many of us who live constantly at the intersection of race, religion, and sexuality, those of us who are black and LGBTQ+, is that same question. Is the story about this saviour, Jesus Christ, true? And if it is true, is it true for me? 
And that isn't a silly question to ask, as those who live in a black world made for whiteness and gay in a world of heteronormativity. And it isn't a silly question for those who are both of those things in a church only now beginning to scratch the surface of its own complicity in racism, both historic and present day, and its own potent homophobia. Living in a church which doesn't feel made for us means that most of us who are black and queer feel as David did in that story by James Baldwin, that the secrets in our hearts are a stench in the nostrils of God. And so trying to make sense of our lives, we basically become biblical scholars by the time we are about 15 or 16, being born often in biblically literate homes and trying to make sense of our queer lives within them. We know about Sodom and Gomorrah and that it has really nothing to do with us. We know of what St. Paul has to say in Romans. We know about Jesus and Genesis tying the male to the female, even though that's not what the Hebrew of Genesis really says. And Jesus, as we know, says absolutely nothing explicit about homosexuality. We know many things about the Bible and its clobber passages. The only thing we are often not taught much about is how that thing called grace carries a weight more profound than other people's biblical illiteracy and lack of love. How grace makes a difference in our lives, not only to our relationship with God, but more importantly, perhaps, our relationship with each other. I realized early on that although the church said that Jesus was the name that charmed our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, although the gospel was meant to be the thing that was like music in the sinner's ears and life and health and peace, actually to be saved in Christian context that I knew meant basically becoming white, becoming straight, and not having any radical politics or liberal worldview. Actually, salvation meant becoming other than myself. Salvation meant death. It meant the denial of truth and the removal of holy desire. Now, one of my earliest memories of a child are both of Sundays, as a child, are both of Sundays. And the first memory is of me uh, standing in the kitchen with a giant wooden-handled fork, turning over frying plantain um, and negotiating dumping hot splashes of oil while my nan was sat in her bedroom who brought me up watching EastEnders Omnibus and someone else in the house, usually my sister or an aunt um, and I just being there getting things ready for Sunday dinner. The second memory of Sunday is of my nan and I walking up to our local Methodist church in Greenford to prepare the communion table for Holy Communion and I always remember the care that she would take spreading the enormous linen cloth over the altar, ironing out the corners perfectly with the palm of her hand and taking the old cloths home to wash. All of this whilst just above us in a stained glass window sat white blonde-haired Jesus who was on a throne which was on a globe and who looked as though he had fallen in love with everything earthly and spent his spare time in the gym. Now, I stared at that image every Sunday for 18 years in a church full of Windrush generation folk 
who saw very little in art and heard very little in liturgy that reflected anything of their own identity and experience and culture. And it wasn't long before I came to realize that both Jamaican culture and white Christianity were not going to be places running to offer a black gay body like mine a welcome. Folk in church would ask me if I had a girlfriend, and old Jamaican men wouldn't bother to ask me if I had one, rather they would ask me how many I had. I knew that I was called to be ordained. I also knew that as I discerned God's call in my heart, many other things were floating around in my soul. Not least the question that Baldwin's characters ask in his short story. Was it true? Was it true that Christ died for me? That the grace of God could extend to me, to my desire, to the truth about my life, as someone working through this complex trinity of race, religion, and sexuality. Could I have a male partner and be ordained? Was it possible to be gay and Jamaican, Christian and gay, young and ordained, black and ordained, when you haven't seen anyone who is any of those things at the front of your church as a kid? I discovered what James Baldwin discovered about the flag of America and the United States as a whole, that neither Christianity nor Jamaican culture had created any place for someone like me. Baldwin puts it this way. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. This sense of being exiled in the very one place where one should feel as though one belongs is what I describe as the famine of grace in my book. It is the sense that just by being you, you are basically someone who is othered by being, the, by being described as the epitome of what it is to be sinful and by being part of churches which refuse to offer us the sacraments or allow us into its leadership and so we are pushed to the margins of the church. The church which is the very place in which the grace of God should be abundant. When I was a Methodist, one hymn we used to sing quite often at communion was come sinners to the gospel feast. Let every soul be Jesus' guest. You need not one be left behind for God has bidden all humankind. And yet, the reality in many churches is that when it comes to inclusivity and inclusion and equality and justice, there are always some whom it seems God is not quite able to love fully. Rowan Williams writes in his essay, The Body's Grace, that grace for the Christian believer is a transformation that depends in large part on knowing yourself to be seen in a certain way, as significant and as wanted 
the whole story of creation, incarnation, and our incorporation into the fellowship of Christ's body tells us that God desires us as if we were God, as if we were that unconditional response to God's giving that God's self makes in the life of the Trinity. We are created so that we may be caught up in this, so that we may grow into the wholehearted love of God by learning that God loves us as God loves God. The life, he writes, of the Christian community has as its rationale, if not invariable, invariably its practical reality, the teaching are so to order our relations that human beings may see themselves as desired as the occasions of joy. So grace is what I see as the remedy for the famine of grace, that the only thing that can enable the famine of grace to end is actually that we just supply more grace because God's grace is abundant anyway. And grace in Rowan Williams' eyes in that particular quote is about knowing ourselves to be seen as God sees us, as significant, as wanted, as desired, and as caught up and included in the dance of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think back to that reading I gave from James Baldwin's short story, where actually Johnny and David are spectating, and all these Christians are in this joyful frenzy around them, they're not quite part of it. And we might ask why, and that might become clear. The experience of many black LGBTQ plus Christians in Britain very often leaves us feeling as though we are spectators rather than participants. And one of the major problems with how we speak about grace is that we often speak about grace only ever through the language of sin. And whilst that may be fundamental, how we understand God's grace, it can be deeply problematic for those who have always been spoken about as sinful, as broken, and who have suffered either in the present or the past what I would call ecclesial terror. The theologian Andrew Prevert remarked in a paper for the Society for the Study of Theology that God, race, and sexuality are abyssal mysteries. Their histories, he says, are full of cruelty and bloodshed. Yet I believe that there is more to the mysteries of God, race, and sexuality than the destructive nothingness of evil that they so tragically bear. There is, he writes, also a genuine opportunity to receive grace. And I suppose in my work, Living at this intersection where race, religion, and sexuality feel complex, in my work, that is what I'm reaching for. How do we speak of the grace of God for those who are not used to hearing the language of God's love applied to them? For those who live at the intersection of Christianity, blackness, and queerness, having heard all the things the church has had to say about LGBTQ plus people, and knowing all the things the world has to say about black and brown bodies. How do those people hear the grace of God? Marcella Althaus-Reed, a theologian who lived in Scotland, wrote that all the concepts of sin and grace 
seemed to be unendingly tangled around the theologian's gaze at other people's beds, bathrooms, or sofas. And any look at what the church has had to say about LGBTQ plus people over the last 50 years will on the whole tell you a story of a church more obsessed with sex than love, equality, and justice, more concerned with what people do in the privacy of their homes than whether they have food in their cupboards. And that's a problem. Father Peter Groves calls grace the cruciform love of God. Basically grace in the shape of the cross. Grace is cruciform, he says, because it crosses human life, but also because it invites human life in, stretches out its arms to enfold the beholder and to offer the beholder a share in the embrace which the Father holds in which the Father holds the Son, who is closest to his own self. Grace is the love of God at work, uniting human beings with Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, and drawing them into fellowship with him. It is not neat and tidy, not polite and withdrawn, but gently and relentlessly aggressive, offending us with its inclusion and undermining our securest assumptions about that which we think we know to be true. When I think of all those who cannot hear the grace of God spoken to them because of the position that they have within the world or within the church, I think about what Peter Grove says here, that grace is not neat and tidy, is not polite and withdrawn, but gently and relentlessly aggressive, offending us, and who is the us, with its inclusion, and undermining our securest assumptions about that which we think we know to be true. When you think of the fact that 44% of young LGBT people consider suicide, that 52% of young LGBT people self-harm, and that between 2008 and 2014, 1,612 trans people were murdered across 62 countries, actually the church's inability to proclaim God's love unconditionally for all people is a huge problem. And that's before we get to any statistics that involve race in those statistics as well. Professor Aishon Crawley reflects on his experience of black Pentecostalism as a queer person of faith in these words. In that boy child, there was something about the desire to practice comfort and care that was also an openness to worlds, an enchantment with possibility, a desire for connection to all that was and was not tangible. That desire would go on to find expression years later in my own queer sexuality, a mode of being that, like my grandmother's, the doctrines of black Pentecostalism would certainly condemn. Growing up as a member of black Pentecostal churches, these feelings within me took on a new life. The kindness of the saints taught me about care and concern as a method for engaging others. The church showed me in a place and a world replete with anti-black racism, that some things are most deeply felt 
when one retreats into the dense folds of the social life of blackness, when one escapes into the sounds of hand claps, foot stomps, tambourines and praise noise. But the dogmas of black Pentecostalism could also sever and forestall care. As my desire expanded into queer sexuality, I'd reflect on the doctrine that lives like mine were abominable and the gap that that produced within me. I wondered about the space between the care my grandmother practiced, a care I can remember only as the feel I have for her, and the eternal torment I understood to be her denouement. Black Pentecostalism is a site of such gaps and contradictions, at least as I theorize it, he writes. Now, what he expresses is true not just of black Pentecostalism, but also of lots of other black church spaces and church spaces in general. In the same spaces where the grace of God is proclaimed, taught, and assumed, there is a contradiction. Grace, as currently expressed in many Christian communities, fails often to be radically inclusive, stopping at equality and never moving to justice, not just for LGBT plus people who are black and brown, but still for women and for the disabled. Grace has often stopped at those who are acceptable and considered normal by the church. The white, the heterosexual, the able-bodied, those whose lives are straightforwardly straight, whose gender identity is not confusing, and who will assimilate into ecclesial structures without troubling or questioning or seeking to abolish them. Come join us and be just like us, is often what we really mean. So before I close, some questions that I ask in my book that I want to ask us all this evening. When does the church cease to be the church of Jesus Christ? When do the church's actions deny the faith that it verbalizes? Can the church neglect the primacy of grace in its dealings with and relations to God's LGBTQ plus children and still really be the church? Can the church be racist and Christian at the same time? Can the church be politically, socially, and economically identified with the structures of power and oppression, and also claim to be a servant of Christ. And what might it look like to know the answer to that question? When does the church cease to be the church of Jesus Christ? To be black and gay in the church today is to know the answer to those questions and to know that the church doesn't really want to hear them. <laughs> to close, I want to take us back to that church away day and to Baldwin's words. We close with a scene that is perhaps the most intimate black queer scene in 20th century literature. Two young black boys find themselves on the top deck, Johnny and David, who we started with at the beginning except that unlike the Holy Spirit frenzy in which all the people of God were gathered around them, Johnny and David are all alone now, as their friend Roy has wandered off with a dazzled girl named Elizabeth. And here is what happens. 
Johnny and David wandered restlessly up and down the boat alone. They mounted the topmost deck and leaned over the railing in the deserted stern. Up here, the air was sharp and clean. They faced the water, their arms around each other. Your old man was kind of tough this morning, David said carefully, watching the mountains pass. Yes, Johnny said. He looked at David's face against the sky. He shivered suddenly in the sharp, cold air and buried his face in David's shoulder. David looked down at him and tightened his hold. Who do you love? He whispered. Who's your boy? You, he muttered fiercely. I love you. The church, of course, is the very thing that made their intimacy possible. The very cause behind their time away, their moment there on the upper deck alone. But it would also be the church that without hesitation or horror in that context would be the first to condemn their love if it was ever made known. And so they, Johnny and David, like so many others who are black and gay and Christian, with a love, they live with a love and truth that without grace at the center of all things, dare not speak its name. There are many Johnnies and Davids who live with this complex set of identities tied up in religion, race, and sexuality. And most of those people can only find the confidence, the courage, and the freedom to speak their truth, to live life in all its fullness, when we allow, invite, and offer the full, unconditional grace of God to all of God's children. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you ever so much, Jarrell, for that. Uh, a, a real challenge, I think, uh, for us all to hear, and an important one as well. Uh, do we have any questions at all? Be bold. Yes. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, if you just wait for the microphone. Thank you very much indeed for a courageous and illuminating talk. Um, for a number of years, the Lambeth Conference has met here in Canterbury on the campus of the University of Kent. And at the 1998 meeting of the Lambeth Conference, I was working at the university. And so during my lunch breaks, I wandered around and chatted to a number of the bishops who were attending. And I had a very interesting conversation with the bishop from Uganda. And the 1998 Lambeth Conference, George Carey was chairing it and he was making human sexuality as one of the main issues to be discussed by the conference. And so I sort of tried gently to raise this with the bishop from Uganda and tried to express um, a sort of liberal Western Christian idea. And he just turned to me, he said, um, what you've got to realize is that in my country, 
homosexuality is forbidden by the law of the country. How do you expect me to go around my congregations saying to break the law of the country is not a Christian act? I didn't know what to say. What would you have said? So I return to hear from you. It's a difficult one. I think, um, you know, there are so many assumptions and ideas that people hold to um, that often are not rooted in, in reality. Often I think people hide behind all kinds of, you know, cultural assumptions and things in that particular context. I suppose my own reading of scripture, and particularly the prophets, and my own rootedness in, in liberation theology particularly, um, I think I would have to say that there are times when the law of the country and the law of the gospel contradict and when actually the command of, of the gospel holds more power, more weight for me um, than anything else. And I think, I would hope that a bishop would understand that. <laughs> um, one of the problems we have, I think, is that we, we've, we've lost, as Christians, a rootedness in our Jewish tradition, you know, in the tradition of the prophets. Um, and when you begin to get into that tradition, you realize that actually God, God does take sides, whether we like it or not. Um, you know, God, God is very clear about where God stands. Um, and those who suffer um, through oppression, through injustice, through inequality, um, those are the people that God is on side with. And so the church has to do the same thing and has to tell in, in that particular situation um, the law that it's wrong, is what I'd say. Not an easy thing to say to a bishop, but I think it's what I would say, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, and I don't think that you exaggerate in anything you have said. I was musing as you were talking, and this was the question I was asking myself. Has the Church of God ever been the Church of God? If you see what I mean by that rather tautologous question. That's I mean, a fantastic question. I mean, has it, you know, is it we have recently fallen from grace? No. We've just never, I mean, Christ, the Christian church has never been terribly Christian. From, from the, you know, almost from the day of Pentecost plus one. I mean, that's a statement rather than a question. So I'm asking you as a question, how do you react to that thought about the church? I, I would agree with you completely. Um, Something that Rowan Williams says in his book, I think it's Silence and Honeycakes, um, is that for all we know, this is still the early church. And I love that, because I think if... Um, Rowan Williams said in one of his books, Silence and Honeycakes, that for all we know, we could be the early church. We could still be the early church. Um, and that, there's something quite redemptive in that, because if that's true, then we're, we're not as bad maybe as we think, <laughs> completely. Maybe there's hope um, for us to become the church. Um, but I basically say, say what you're saying in, in the book towards the end of it. Um, I use very provocative language of talking about the abolition of the church, but what I mean is the church should be born through getting rid of some of the structures we have, which I think stop us from being the church of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, and I say this now as a priest in the established church, and I think establishment as Anglicans is a huge barrier um, to some of the prophetic work that we could be doing with people on, on the margins because we are very worried about um, our reputation 
and being an institution amongst the established institutions. You know, it's, it's a big thing. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I, I suppose what I wanted to ask about was about um, intergenerational issues in this as well. Mm -hmm. Listening to you, then it's really fascinating. So I still consider myself to be quite young, but I'm realizing rapidly that I'm not, and I'm now middle-aged. And um, I work, I'm a social worker, and I've worked for 25 years in, in social work, and sometimes that has been kind of quite difficult conflict with my faith, and sometimes I've been the token Christian who gets sent out for the you know, difficult, happy, clappy clients and so forth. But I'm also a mother of a, of a son, and, um, and he seems to have a better grasp now on sexuality at 14 than I do in, with all of my professional and life experience and constant CPD. So I just wondered what we're doing to engage the real youth and listen to them, because some of them know far better than us, maybe. Definitely. Um, I mean, that's been my experience in so many situations. Um, I do a lot of work with young people, not, not necessarily through the church, but just people who know me and reach out and say, you know, can we talk? Um, and one of the things I would say is that they're, they're in a very different place, not only on things like sexuality, but their sense of moral compass is so clear. When I was a chaplain at King's College London, um, I just saw in the students this real sense of right and wrong that I didn't have at their age. You know, I wasn't that far ahead of them, but I just thought there is a difference already. They hit the streets to protest like that, you know, I, I would have to be really encouraged when I was that age to go out and protest about anything, but they do, and they care about these things. Um, and I think there is a difference in that, you know, actually, that they, they know what they stand for very clearly, um, which is hopeful. Um, but the, the thing that makes me worry is I think the church, until it learns to speak about human sexuality in a, in a better way, and not just about human sexuality, I, think, I don't think we have a sex problem in the church, I think we have a body problem in the church you know, generally. Um, and if I had longer, I would talk about why I think that's all to do with the fact that we don't really believe that God came to us in flesh. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of Christian deceitism still around in us. Um, that means we're not able to talk about the body properly or honestly. And actually, young people do. And they do it amongst themselves. Um, and they do so openly and honestly. And as soon as they come through the doors of church, it's as though we're not really able to cope with that. And we certainly don't do it in our preaching or even in our smaller groups um, because we've been conditioned too to not bring the whole of ourselves into the Christian community. Um, so a big problem in connecting to the younger generation is our kind of lack of honesty, I think. You know, we talk about the ideal marriage, the ideal family. We even talk about the ideal divorce, if you like. You know, when we talk about what these things are like, we, we neaten it all up and we don't say, you know, this is my experience. This is what life is like for me. Um, and those of us who are in leadership are as guilty as, as anyone else because often we, um, because we're perceived to have perfect lives, we often present as though we do. You know? um, so there's a lot there to do with the next generation and, and what it would take for us to really connect with them. Um, thank you very much. I, I was particularly, um, I suppose, 
surprised in a way how the emphasis of your talk was on grace and I, I was, that was very welcome. Um, and this isn't, obviously the answer to this isn't either or, but um, I was struck particularly coming from uh, the Church of England myself. The hierarchy, the structure, and then the individuals, those of us in the congregations, are moving in different, at different speeds and often in different directions. Um, what, what can be done about harmonizing that movement and also where is the responsibility? Is the responsibility with the hierarchy and the structure or is it actually for them to say it's our responsibility um, as individuals, as congregations to work this out? Sure, yeah, that's a really good question, thank you. Um, and I do think the same thing that happened with um, uh, women, women bishops in terms of there was a divide in terms of the houses and where you know congregations sat in terms of clergy and bishops and all of that, the same thing I think is true for human sexuality and, and equal marriage in the church actually, that there is gonna be a very different um, movement in those different places. A bit of me, and I, I read a lot of church history, and that's my actual proper area, is, is church history. And um, when Athanasius of Alexandria was elected to be bishop, the people of Alexandria at first refused to accept him. Um, and this happened quite often. His, his uh, diocese ran him away from his diocese. He was exiled many times um, because they weren't happy um, with some of his views and some of the things he was doing. The same thing happened to Cyprian of Carthage and other bishops as well. And I make that point to say that sometimes in my mind, I wish, I wish the laity were a bit more rowdy and actually a bit more um, radical in terms of saying to the clergy, um, we demand more of you, you know? Because actually, I think often lay folk can, can underestimate their power, you know? And actually we need people to say, this is what we expect of our, of our clergy. You know, this is what, we hope for in you, and you're not giving us the leadership or the oversight that we need. Um, you're not doing the thing that we think is just and right and true. Um, and then what, what will be done about that? I think there needs to be sometimes a bit more um, pressure put on. Uh, because at the end of the day, the, the clergy are kept afloat by people who are faithfully giving week by week. And I think sometimes there needs to be serious thought given you know, if we're going to invest in the structures of the church, what, what is the church actually doing um, to be more like Christ? Um, and there's some very serious examples of when that has gone wrong, you know, in the past and in the present day. Um, and we need to remember that balance is an important one. Um, to be honest, I would say um, the laity should, should speak. They do, people do, but to speak more um, and be a, more of a thorn in the in the flesh, really. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. Leading on from what you've just been saying about church hierarchy, um, I was really appalled uh, about the Twitter storm um, after you had posted about Captain Tom Moore and the response from the Bishop of London. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about perhaps what you might have learned from that situation and what role the media has to play in, the, in this. Of course. No, thank you. I think a lot of people were, and that was an interesting time, is the best kind of clearest way to put it. Um, I think there, were, there was a deep sadness for me overall. 
Um, and not actually for myself. The, the deepest sadness came from some of the things that I received which showed me how much um, people in society don't understand the office of a minister, a priest, um, at all. Genuine anger, not, not so much about what I had said, but that I had said anything. That actually your job, as someone ordained, is to just kind of keep quiet and, and do your thing, but don't disturb anything. You know, anything could happen that might be politically um, relevant for you to speak about, but you're not, you're not there for that. And I thought, what, it was sad for me that people had set their sights so low, that they didn't think that clergy had any role um, in the politics of, of our nation. Um, and actually, even, even if someone doesn't say something that people like, um, I thought it was sad that the majority of the stuff was about ever speaking at all. You know, um, and actually what we expect from you is that you're, you're supposed to bring people together, but what that was really meaning was don't say anything that's awkward or difficult or that troubles the waters for anyone. Um, and we're in a political climate at the moment in which I would say is very dangerous for some of our religious leaders to keep quiet. Um, and the biggest learning curve for me coming out of that was how do you speak prophetically or powerfully in our society and do that in a way which means you can be heard properly for saying what you've actually said as opposed to what people read you as saying. And that's a very difficult thing, particularly when the institution reacts in the way it did in my situation, um, which was basically to kind of, you know, not really deal with what was said, but just silence you and deal with the massive upset. Um, and that is a problem, because there are going to be times in the future, um, you know, are much more um, pressing things where clergy may need to say something, and actually they might think twice or not at all now, um, particularly in the Church of England or in the Diocese of London. And so that's a kind of ongoing worry for me, is what does it mean to be a public representative now? Um, and how do we speak prophetically on social media? Because um, again, to go to the intergenerational thing, that is the place where younger people are having the political conversation. You know, so the church can't retreat from that completely, um, because it is a space for ministry and for witness. But thank you. Yes, one I hesitate because I waited many years and fought with other women within Methodism to be ordained. So I'm one, I can't help wondering why you switched. And I'm sure there's a very good reason. I'd be interested to hear it. Um, but also because I know what it's like to stand up against the hierarchy of whatever and say, no, but we, I, nearly, I nearly became a Catholic just be, to become a nun. Yep. Because somehow God was calling me for something, and maybe that's what it was. Of course, of course. Except I also met a bloke, <laughs> whom I love tremendously. Um, yeah. Question about that? It, that it, well, it's the two things. It's the, you know taking on the hierarchy, mm. Mm. Um, and why you perhaps made the sure, change. Sure. Um, I'll do the second one first and then come back to the, the other one. Um, the reality is it's a very long story, and I know people say that often when they don't mean it, and, but mine is, I think, the people are often very keen. Yes. 
Yes. Absolutely. Indeed. It's fantastic. It's very good. No, no, and I was very glad about that and rejoiced when I saw that happen. Um, um, well, I, I think often when people ask about this, they often want a very clear, clean narrative of vocational stories, you know? That actually, we, we want this often from people, that um, A led to B and B led to C, and the reality is that's just not true. And so I have often said to people, and I, I keep saying this, and people find it confusing and difficult, um, that on, in a very genuine and serious, honest way, there's a bit of me that doesn't know why I am where I am. And that might sound really weird, but it's just me not wanting to speak for God. Um, there's, a, there's a genuine sense in which I can chase a, a kind of series of events that led to this, but there's also within me a kind of underlying questioning of why, why has this happened? So just to say that, so people don't think that these things happen in a, in a smooth or clear way. Um, but in reality, for me, I was very unhappy um, in Methodism in my last appointment which was in Southeast London. Um, and most of you will know that in Methodism, you're itinerant, so you're placed in different places. Um, I had very, a very good five years in Wales where I had two very different congregations, but on the whole, um, they were lovely and completely affirming of who I was. Um, issues in the community in terms of race, because I think in, in the part of Wales that I was in, um, there weren't that many people of color at all, and they certainly hadn't had a black minister in the churches I had before. But in terms of sexuality, nothing. And I go from that part of Wales to southeast London, where I think, oh, London will be, you know, welcoming, diverse, fine. Um, but two black majority churches. And this basically makes the point of what I'm, I'm talking about tonight. Um, so I went from two white majority churches to two black majority churches. Um, and the people in those churches largely had come from West Africa um, fairly recently in many ways. I took over from a Ghanaian minister who had been there for eight years, um, who was married with children. Um, and I rock up as someone who's black and openly gay, but didn't push it, didn't say anything about it, just made it known to the stewards of the church that this is who I am. Um, don't tend to preach on my sexuality much, don't tend to, to force it or, you know, push it anywhere. Um, but they were very uncomfortable with that. Um, and bit by bit, um, life there just became completely impossible. Um, I was receiving hate mail and death threats and lots of things which made my life quite difficult. Um, and so I decided to curtail that appointment. And I went on retreat to Walsingham, um, secretly praying that I might get some clarity. And I wasn't there for retreat. I was there to give an organ recital. Um, and as part of the payment, they gave me a free place on the retreat. And Bishop Jonathan Goodall was giving a talk on Mary as the mother of the church. And the irony there is that Bishop Jonathan was the Bishop of Epsley and recently became a Roman Catholic. Um, but I had this deep sense of conversion within me um, from the talk that he gave and from the mass that he celebrated. And suddenly, the episcopate made sense to me. Um, and I had to work all of that out. Um, how did I you know, manage to make that next step um, into becoming an Anglican, realizing that I couldn't stay in Methodism anymore because the relationship was so broken. Um, but I had a new conviction within me about where I needed to be. Uh, but that's only 1% of the reality, there's a lot more, but thank you. Um, the hierarchy question, I think it goes back to what I was saying about the, you know, how would I respond to a bishop in Uganda is, um, I come from a culture where we have a respect for our elders, which makes it quite difficult for me sometimes to speak the truth to people um, who are older than me 
or more senior than me. And I've had to un learn to undo all of that. Because in Jamaican culture, um, you, you would never tell someone who's older than you what you really think. Um, but I've had to learn to do that. Um, and I think it's because I've seen the cost of people's silence. And, and I'm so aware of how easily and how quickly we can become complicit in structures of oppression and injustice to the point where we ourselves can become complicit in abuse, in evil, in wickedness. Um, and I'm just not, I'm, I'm more willing now to tell the truth to people, um, regardless of who they are, than I am to be complicit in other people's suffering, um, even though we can never be completely free from that. Um, but I think we have to find the courage, not just in, in speaking, but find the courage in our prayer life um, to be able to speak the truth to power and face the consequences. Um, and sometimes they're very serious. There's one there. Thank you, Gerald, for um, such an interesting and, and uh, provocative evening you've started for us. Um, I, you did use the term institutionally racist, I think, didn't you? Uh, um, as you were posing questions at the end. It, it's becoming commonplace for us to use that kind of language now, isn't it? For yeah. a, a couple of decades, possibly since that famous public inquiry and report that first brought the idea of institutional racism, I think, in the, in the police, perhaps, into, into public parlance. And, um, but when we say an institution is racist, an institution is homophobic, I always think that doesn't get us very far, does it? Um, firstly, because I would, I would like to hear an institution say, oh yes, we, we understand, we're starting to understand that we might be institutionally racist. But then there never seems to be the next step, and so we're going to try and uncover what, that's, what that means and how we might address that. And one of the reasons is that that's immensely complex, isn't it? Um, we can't go to Church House and pull out the filing cabinet and find the policy document that says black people are second-class members of the church because it's you know it's not written it's not done like that, is it? The powers that make institutional corruption are really complex powers. Sociologists would have something to say about them. Group analysts would have something to say about them. I'm not sure if theologians and ecclesiologists. I've even started to understand what it, what it means for us, what kind of institution are we, and how do powers play out, and how what might we start to address and dismantle those powers, and challenge those powers. I wondered if you were looking into any of that in your book, which I haven't read yet, um, or if you're you know, aware of and interested in work that's going on around addressing power inside an institution. I do touch on it in the book a bit towards the end. Um, you know, I think that one of the things I was thinking about as you were speaking is the language that I immediately go to when I think about this is the language of sin. That we, we do need, I think, a healthier and more robust theology of than the one we have. Um, and a broader theology of sin. And part of the problem is, you know, we've, we've, we've enabled the sinful to become a very small set of people, actually, and categories of people. But we don't really have an institutional concept of what institutional sin looks like. You know, we don't really have the theological language for saying, well, if we know the church is broken, what does it mean to call the church sinful? 
And if the church is sinful, how does the church repent um, you know, of its sin? And one of the things I say in the book is that the church needs to hear the message it proclaims to people, and it needs to hear it for its institutional life. You know, it says that people who are LGBTQ plus have to be transformed, but actually the institution needs to be transformed. And what does that look like? Um, what does the conversion of the church's heart look like? Um, and for me, I would, I would go to the language of kenosis. So, you know, Jesus empties himself of everything um, on the cross and in the incarnation. What does it look for the church to do the kenotic thing, to, to model its life on Christ to the point of, of dying for the life of the world? Um, and actually, all of our language about saving the institution, um, which is the language that we, we use all the time at the moment of, you know, our survival seems to be the most important thing, um, is the very opposite of that. Because when Jesus is, is, you know, on his way in his life to the cross, um, you know, Jerusalem is always seen there and he's, he's not backing away from it. But the church does the complete opposite. We, we don't want a Good Friday moment at all. Um, and yet that's the place in which we might discover what grace really is not just for the world, but for us. Um, because we have a history that we're looking at, but we're not really willing to properly engage with. Um, and the thing about the cross is that it is the place which makes all of us interrogate our relationship with power. You know, actually. What does it mean to be someone who's not really willing to be like Jesus? You know, I know what that's like. I'm not willing most days to give up what I value most. You know, um, and in my parish, when I walk around, I see so much um, poverty, people sleeping rough, abuse issues, all sorts. And I read people like Ken Leach, who is in our parish, and I compare myself to him. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that work. There's a reason within me why I'm comfortable not doing it. You know, that's to do with my own sin. In the same way in which the church not being the church is about some, somewhere within itself, it's got content to be what it is. And it has to face that. Um, and I think that if we don't have the language of sin and repentance for our institutional life, it just doesn't work for individual life at all. Um, so I am thinking about it, but that's where my thoughts go are going, really, um, in terms of that. Forgive me, because I'm halfway through some thoughts of my own. <clears throat> I happen to read a lecture today on sin. I haven't thought about sin for quite a time. And it, it got into original sin and, and so on and so forth. And being a simple soul, I thought, well, sin is actually about doing harm. Is it about anything else? It's about doing harm to somebody else. Which means that you can't be somebody and, and be sinful. Just being somebody can't be sinful. You have to actually do something. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it's not complicated, but I'm working on it. <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the problems in the church, particularly around, around this stuff, is that actually... Um, identities have become seen and spoken of as sinful. Um, but the damage that does to people 
is huge. And I, I spend a lot of time with LGBT Christians who are young and, and um, Christian and in churches. And you know, they're at the point where they're like, I, I have this sense within me, this feeling that this is who I am. Um, you know, I haven't experienced what it's like to be in the arms of another human being sexually, but I feel this. And they already feel as though even having that awareness is enough. That, you know, God is done with them and they're hellbound. Um, and there's no one, there's no one really picking up that work for those people whose various identities have been seen as sinful, you know? Um, they live in a world that hates their blackness. They live in, in a church which, you know, can't, cannot quite embrace their sexuality. And they're like, well, who is God for me? If I, if I am sinful, having not even done anything, <laughs> um, how do, you, how do you proclaim the gospel to someone who's already said, I'm past it, and I'm past it because of what I've heard Christians say about people like me, and what I've read and heard? Um, and one of the things about, about the book was that it was written really, I didn't want to write it. Um, I was interested in writing something on history, and the publishers weren't interested in that, but I wrote it because from a British context, I could see nothing that was looking at race, religion, and sexuality. Um, there was lots written on, on LGBT lives and the church, but nothing looking at what it means to be someone who isn't white and LGBTQ plus in a religious context. And all the other work was happening in the States, and of course the States has a very different history when it comes to race and a very different context that you can't translate. Um, but the common thread would be, you know, how we speak about sin. Um, absolutely. <laughs> But, and I think a really interesting thing is, you know, in terms of that language, I don't know if you saw It's a Sin by Russell T. Davies. That was fairly recently. But I thought, I had just finished the book when that came out, and I thought it really interesting that that was the language he used for the title of his series. And it's because, actually, theological language is so pervasive. It's so powerful. Um, and if you, watch, if you watch that series, you realize, again, how race is at the forefront of that, because the very first person to be thrust out into the wilderness by his family Thank you so much. Um, kind of a two-part and related question. Um, I'd like to hear your views on LLF and your hopes for so-called next steps. Sorry, it's a bit of an Anglican question. Um, and related to that, as someone newly hoiked into the heart of the institution, apparently, at General Synod, um, any reflections or thoughts about your hopes for the next quinquennial um, obviously nobody's got a crystal ball but uh, given what you've said LLF um, <laughs> I think I think I have a difficulty with with anything let me start in a different place I think coming as someone who is um, a black person and, and I'm a dual citizen so I'm a, a citizen of Jamaica as well and Jamaica is a very important place to me um, although I have obviously a difficult relationship with it because of my identity but um, I'm, I've always been very aware of the fact and because I was told this story as a kid you know my family come from Morant Bay in Jamaica you might know about the Morant Bay rebellion um, which was a rebellion of enslaved people 
um, against their, their slave masters, and many were killed, and as a result of that, um, many of the slaves were killed afterwards as well, um, in retaliation for it. But I always grew up knowing, and it was always told to me, that, you know, our freedom wasn't handed to us, you know? And we often get the William Wilberforce story and John Wesley writing to him, and those things are lovely, but actually rebellion played its part. And so as someone with that in my mind, I kind of think, well, if LLF has no very fixed, clear proposals within it, number one, um, you know, where is it going to take us? Um, I'm also very skeptical about the fact that, you know, apparently going to a few discussions um, and, and watching about other people's lives in rooms with people who vehemently disagree with me is apparently going to enable those people to love and accept me. I'm not so sure. Um, and it comes back to the other question um, about institutions that, that I think we're not able to talk about the fact that some people's lack of love for LGBTQ plus people is not just about phobia, <laughs> if at all, um, but is actually about sin. You know, my inability to love my neighbor regardless of who my neighbor is, is about my own grappling with my, my own sin, my own, um, my own lack of grace. And that can't be changed by a kind of discussion process. <laughs> um, you know, hearts are not changed by looking at slides. Um, and so if, if, if the reality is that, you know, the people um, in churches that are not like the parish church that I belong to, if, if they are going to love and accept me, um, and if the church is going to allow me to marry the man I love, then actually hearts have to change. And I'm not sure that LLF is taking that seriously enough. You know, not minds don't have to change on their own, but hearts have to change. And that's a much more complicated thing because it's, it's asking a deeper question, you know. Um, but at the same time, in churches and contexts where they've never spoken about sexuality, I think LLF is probably a very good resource to have that conversation start. But it's, I'm not sure what will take the church to where it needs to be, you know. Um, and I don't have any other hopes for the next um, quinquennial except for the fact that the church will change its mind um, and do the right thing, you know. We are currently exploring and, and taking the first steps in open table. I'm based here in Canterbury. Um, it, what are your thoughts as to taking that forward? Any tips? I would say um, try, and, try and see if there are any ways to just be mindful of the fact that there will be people um, of many different ethnicities who might want to be part of that, but who might not partake for one reason or the other. And actually, you know, my experience of inclusive church spaces, church spaces that deliberately want to be inclusive, is that they are very good on the sexuality stuff, but actually in terms of race, there's often not much diversity, you know? And I, I think it's, it's sometimes a lack of awareness, and sometimes it's just saying that, it's naming it. Um, but it's also thinking of, you know, how do we worship? Where do we advertise what we're doing? Um, when do we meet? How, what language do we use? Um, you know, do we express the fact that we are, we are genuinely looking to welcome all people? Um, and, and how are issues of you know, class, for example, engaged with um, in, those, in those particular groups? I just think, um, and I think the reality is that people who are coming from particular cultural backgrounds like my own need a greater degree of privacy often, because actually the cost of coming out can be huge in a, in a very different way when you have connections to other parts of the world. You know, I knew that me coming out meant that actually Jamaica would be a much less safe place for me, and I don't go back to see family there now as me because I can't. Um, so it, it's, there's, there's a loss on a different level. Um, 
And actually, there are not the same um, nets, I think, in place often for those coming from cultures where um, the response to not being heterosexual um, is maybe 20 or 30 years behind where people might think it is, you know, um, and where churches or Christian circles are just not engaging with those topics at all. So definitely the, the racial diversity thing would be my, my thing. We have time, I think, for maybe one more question. I think I'm going to ask one then. Um, <laughs> are you hopeful for the church uh, being a place of true inclusion and a place of grace? Hmm. <laughs> I think if I'm honest, um, at, at my book launch, I quoted someone, um, Dr. Zoe Simudzi, who works in political um, theology and, and in um, political theory as well. Um, and she said something once which has always stuck with me. She said that to be black and hopeful is to be a liar. <laughs> and I was so shocked by what she said. But then I was suddenly deeply aware of the fact that I know what she means. Um, and when I look for signs of hope as someone who is not just black, but black and gay in the church, there's not much that gives me hope. Um, and I don't know what I would call it. It's, it's not hope or optimism. I just have a deep trust um, that what is true and what will win the day is the fact that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. Don't ask me what that looks like in the church or what that looks like for black and LGBTQ plus folk. But that's my kind of driving force. It's not hope or optimism. It's just a kind of deep sense of in the end, God will win. Um, and it may mean that all of this will have to fall away, that so many of us are deeply trying to keep <laughs> surviving. Um, but hopeful is not the word I'd use. Um, I'm, I'm here trying to make things better um, against all the opposition. And I just believe that in the end, um, the death and resurrection of the Lord will win out. <laughs> and we'll see it. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jarrell, uh, for uh, a fascinating and challenging and thought-provoking and disturbing uh, evening uh, all in one. Um, uh, and thank you for the prophetic voice that you are offering to the church. I think a church that, that does desperately need to uh, to hear what you have to say. So thank you ever so much for, for that. Um, in a moment, I'm going to uh, hand over to Deacon Joy for our formal word of uh, thanks. Um, just to uh, highlight for you, um, Jarrell's book is on sale uh, at the back. Uh, if not, it's uh, available in all good bookshops and uh, through Amazon and other uh, places. Um, we also um, 
uh, need to remind you that there's um, some chap coming uh, next month on the 16th. You might have heard of him, Rowan Williams. Uh, he'll be here for our next lecture on the 16th of February um, at 7.30, and you are all warmly welcome uh, to that. Um, and uh, also, if you want to... Uh, 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 be, uh, find out more about our uh, lecture series, then uh, please do take one of our leaflets at the back and, uh, and subscribe uh, to our remaining lectures for, for this coming uh, season. But uh, I'm going to hand over now to, to Deacon Joy, but uh, thank you very much for this evening. Well, I'd just like to say thank you for Tim for saying everything that's on my thank you list. <laughs> Which is quite useful, thank you very much. But I'd like to thank the rest before I thank Jarrell, uh, the, the, the rest of the, the team who have put these lectures together. Um, I've been part of a very small part of that. Um, uh, but we, we thank you and for the last two years of, of, of silence, but managed to put something together anyway and keep it all together. I thank you so much for. A lecture that is not just words, but a lecture of grace and a lecture of love. Um, it, that so comes across in the way you are uh, and the way you, you relate to everybody here. You know, looking at around the room and, and not seeing any other faces of colour, basically. I, I, I can see other LGBT people, if my gay dar's working still. <laughs> And I think it is. Um, but yeah, I, I think theology at its best is when it gives us a glimpse into God's heart. And I think, you know, Joel's talk has given us a way of thinking out of our own white, straight, you know, heteronormative boxes into a, a glimpse of somebody else's grace who, who sits on the other side of that and, and feel the hurt of the LGBT community and especially being black and queer as well. Um, I, I can only see one of them and I thank you for your wonderful courage and be able to stand up and show that grace as well to others. Thank you. If we could give another clap. It would be wonderful.